Hey, this is Dave Ryder from New Spring Church here in beautiful Perth, Western Australia. Really praying that this message is going to help you. If you'd like some more information about our story, just head to newspring.org.au. Hey, it's good to be with you, New Spring Church. How are you? I hope you're going well. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you, Dave, so much for the invitation and for the kind introduction. It is honestly my pleasure and my privilege to have uh, time with all you beautiful people. It has been a long time since I was here last, but it's good to see some familiar faces and some old friends. And of course, it's a great uh, privilege to have opportunity to share with you from out of the Word of God. Now, um, every year, around about the middle of June, an organization here in Australia that we know as Vinnie's runs a special event called the CEO Sleepout. And the event is designed to draw attention to the issue of homelessness in our nation and to raise funds for the organization. And the idea behind the event is that CEOs and other like corporate level executives will go and spend a night out on the streets uh, and experience something of the phenomenon of homelessness. And it's a wonderful event. Every year they raise millions of dollars. In fact, I think this year they raised like 5.7 or 5.9 million dollars, even though they had to do it slightly differently uh, because of the COVID situation. And of course, it does to some degree draw attention to the reality of homelessness on our streets. Um, As wonderful as the event is, and I think it is wonderful, I think you will all agree with me that spending one night out on the streets in your $300 sleeping bag, with your $500 polar fleece jacket from Kathmandu, with your beanie and your gloves and your steaming hot cup of sponsored hot chocolate, (laughs) is hardly a meaningful incarnation of the reality of homelessness. By that I simply mean it doesn't quite equate to the reality of homelessness as so many genuinely homeless people Uh, have to experience it and endure it every day of their lives. And that reality is particularly clear when you contrast that experience with the story and the life of a man called Joseph de Wooster. Now, Joseph de Wooster was a 20th century Catholic priest who ended up changing his name to Father Damien. That's what he was best known as. And he changed his name when he relocated to a small remote village called Kalawao on the island of Molokai in Hawaii. And this particular little village had been separated and and quarantined from the rest of the island to serve as a leper colony. So people who contracted the disease, which was rampant at that particular time, would move to this village basically to die. And so when Father Damien heard about these people and uh, their plight, he was moved with compassion and he felt sympathy for them to the point that he decided to pack up whatever belongings he had and to move to that little village where he ended up spending 16 years of his life serving and loving and caring for these particular people. He learned their language, he built them schools, he educated them, he uh, built um, houses for them, he uh, designed little uh, groups, work groups, and, and song groups, and music groups, and choir groups, and he taught them, you know, the gift of music and song. He even, get this, built over 2,000 coffins by hand, so that those who died could uh, at least be buried with some degree of dignity. And so gradually, over time, through his life and his presence and his influence, Kalawao gradually became a place where people could actually live as opposed to a place people just simply went to die. And uh, 
Father Damien made no real meaningful attempt to distance himself from the people that he was loving and serving. So back in those days, there was, there was no social distancing. There was no hand sanitizer. There were no masks, right? There was no contact tracing. He made no effort whatsoever to separate himself from the people that he was loving and serving. So he would work alongside them. He would sleep alongside them. He would eat with them. He would, uh, you know, um, enjoy recreational time together with them. He would sit at the dinner table with them. He would put his hand in the same bowl of food that they were eating out of. He would tend to their needs and care for their wounds and their, and their sores without necessarily washing his hands every time afterwards. In other words, he made no attempt whatsoever to put any distance between himself and them. And for this, the people absolutely loved him. And then on one particular Sunday morning during their little Sunday service that they held every Sunday, he stood up in front of the church and he began his sermon with these words. He said, we lepers need God. And of course, the people were taken aback by the strange and, and unexpected introduction. But apparently what had happened was the night before, he had messed boiling water onto his arm and he felt no pain. And it suddenly occurred to him he had contracted the disease as well. And so from that moment onward, he was now no longer just on their island. He was in their skin. And he was no longer just amongst them. He was now one of them. And he was now from that moment destined to die in the same way that they would die. And die he did on that island, loving and caring for the people that he had given his life to serve. That, friends, is incarnation. That is the reality of love in action. And here we are just, well, less than two weeks out from Christmas. We're right in the middle of the Advent season where we uh, take time to throw the spotlight on what is perhaps one of the greatest truths of the Christian faith, the truth of the incarnation, the truth that God himself clothed himself in humanity, that he stepped across the threshold of time uh, into our part of the world. He came to our little island in the universe, and he came not only to be with us, but to be like us, to clothe himself in our humanity and to immerse himself in our experience. And today, I want to simply turn to one of my favorite books in all of the Bible, and I want to follow the advice and the exhortation of the writer to the Hebrews, who said these words in Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, and reading from verse 1, says, Dear brothers and sisters who belong to God and are partners with those called to heaven, think carefully about this Jesus, whom we declare to be God's messenger and our high priest. And that is exactly what we're going to do this morning. We're going to carefully consider this Jesus. Give careful consideration and thought to this Jesus whom God has sent into the world for two reasons. Number one, to be his messenger, and number two, to be our high priest, right? And so the first thing the Hebrew uh, writer says is that Jesus came into this world to be God's messenger. And that simply means that he came to communicate the heart of God to the world. He came not only to bring the message, but to be the message, to personify and embody and exemplify what it is that God was trying to communicate to the world. And as the personification of God's communication to the world, Jesus became the most profound, most clear, most accurate revelation of God the world has ever seen. And that simply means if you want to know what God is like, just look at Jesus. If you want to know what God values, look at Jesus. If you want to know what God prioritizes, look at Jesus. If you want to know what God thinks and feels, look at Jesus. He is the fullest, most complete, most profound revelation of God the world has ever seen. 
And as such, Jesus profoundly challenges the assumptions that people have about God. So those who have assumed that God is just some impersonal force, some cosmic energy out there in the ether of the universe, discovered through Jesus that God is a person. God is a being. God is relational. God is knowable. God is personal. God is emotional. God is rational. God feels and God thinks and God speaks and God listens. And you can have an intimate relationship with God, right? Those who uh, assumed that God was angry and, and judgmental and vindictive, antagonistic, discovered through Jesus. Now, God is forgiving and God is loving and God is merciful and God is long-suffering and God is patient and God is kind. Uh, those who assumed that God was indifferent, those who thought that God was you know, somewhere out there on the other side of the universe, far removed and completely disinterested in our lives, discovered in Jesus, no, God is near. God is imminent. God is with us. God is amongst us. God is willing to roll up his sleeves and get down into the trenches and come alongside you and me and experience the reality of our life here on earth, right? And so Jesus, as God's messenger, challenged our assumptions about God, and he communicated the very essence of what God was wanting to say to the world, which was simply this, that God so loved everybody in the world that he would do everything in his power to make sure that people had the opportunity to be brought back into a right, loving relationship with the God who made them and gave them life, right? So Jesus came to be our messenger, the messenger from God. But then the writer to the Hebrews also says that he came to be our high priest. Jesus came to be our high priest. Now, if you've been around church a long time, and uh, if you're familiar with your Bible and you're familiar with the Old Testament in particular and Jewish religious culture, you'll have some sense of what the high priest was and what he did. But for those of you who don't, let me just take a moment to give you a bit of background and fill in the gap. So the, the high priest was like the spiritual leader of Israel and the representative of the people before God. And every year, the high priest would go into the presence of God in the, in the holiest place of the temple on one particular day called the Day of Atonement, and he would offer a sacrifice to God on behalf of the people to atone for their sin. And so the writer to the Hebrews goes to great lengths in the book of Hebrews from chapter 2 all the way through to the end of chapter 10 to explain how Jesus became our high priest by presenting himself as a sacrifice before God through his death on the cross of Calvary, how he overcame sin by virtue of a sinless life and overcame death by the power of the resurrection and presented himself to God in the ultimate holy place in heaven. And as such, Jesus became the one for all sacrifice that removed the need for any other sacrifice. So now you and I no longer need to bring sacrifices to God because we have a way into the presence of God through what Jesus did through his work on the cross of Calvary. So the writer to the Hebrews goes to great detail to explain all of that in Hebrews chapter 2 through to the end of Hebrews chapter 10. Now we don't have the time to delve into all of that, but what I do want to say to you for the sake of this conversation is simply that the writer to the Hebrews makes it abundantly clear that it is precisely because of the incarnation that Jesus is uniquely positioned and qualified to serve as our high priest. It is precisely because he came to be with us and became like us, that Jesus is able to identify with us, empathize with us, and faithfully represent us as high priest before the Father. So without the incarnation and the reality thereof, Jesus would not be able to represent us faithfully to the Father. So in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 to 18, he says this, Therefore, it was necessary for Jesus to be like us. 
his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. A priest who would be both merciful to us and faithful to God in dealing with the sins of the people. For since he himself has now been through suffering and temptation, he knows what it is like when we suffer and are tempted, and he is wonderfully able to help us. Right? So the writer to the Hebrews here is saying that Jesus is able to serve as a faithful high priest because he understands us, because he gets us, because he has experienced what we have experienced, because of the reality of his incarnation. And that has two profound and very significant implications for us today. And this is the heart of what I want to share with you. And the first implication that this means for you and I is that with Jesus as our high priest, we have help for today. We have help for today. And by that I mean we have an inexhaustible, always available and accessible and always reliable source of divine intervention, of divine providence, of divine power. We have an always accessible and reliable source of wisdom, grace, strength, courage, uh, direction, instruction, whatever it is you might need in any particular season, because we have a high priest who is able to identify and empathize with us. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 to 16, the writer to the Hebrews says, So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses. For he faced all of the same temptations we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help when we need it most. Right? Because we have such a high priest, we have help for today. Because Jesus knows what it is you're going through. How many of you here today have ever experienced the sorrow and the grief of losing someone you love? Let me see your hand. Yep. Well, Jesus knows how that feels. How many of you have ever been betrayed by someone you trust? Let me see your hand. Far too many hands, right? Well, Jesus knows how that feels. How many of you have ever been frustrated, disappointed, angry, and tired? <laughs> Let me see your hand, right? Come on. Well, Jesus knows what it is to feel those things. He knows what it is to be, to be physically beaten and abused. He knows what it is to be publicly humiliated. He knows what it is to be tired and frustrated and disappointed. He knows what it is to be hungry and homeless. Jesus knows what it is, even at the extreme end of human experience, to die because he has died himself. Right? And it is precisely because Jesus knows what it is to be human and knows what it is to feel grief and feel sorrow and knows what it is to suffer adversity and difficulty and hardship that he is able to identify and empathize and sympathize and understand and he is able to help. And I'm pretty sure you've already figured out by now that in life, not everyone you turn to for help is going to be able to help. Right? Not everyone you turn to for help is going to be able to help. Like if you came to me today and said, Tim, my car's not starting, and uh, I don't know what's going on. Can you come help me have a look at what's going on? In my no, no, I can't. Not because I'm not willing, because I'm not able. Because I don't have a cooking clue what's going on underneath the bonnet of your car in that engine. I have no idea, right? I, I cannot possibly express in words 
how limited and useless my knowledge of a car engine actually is, right? And I'm sorry, all you petrol heads out there and, and all you motorsport lovers, I do not care how many pistons, valves, carburetors, spark plugs, horsepowers your car's got. I could know it's lost on me, right? I've got no idea. I, yesterday, I had a, no, Friday, I had a, a funny experience. I, my car had this major engine rattle. I mean, like major. I thought the engine was going to drop out. And so I thought I'd better take it in and get it checked. So I booked it in for a service at Automasters. <laughs> and uh, the guy phoned me up halfway through the day. He said, listen, Mr. Healy, there's nothing wrong with your car. Your car's fine. We checked it out. It's just got no oil. Like, that's why it's rattling. <laughs> so you've got to check the oil and keep topping up the oil, man. He said, like, your timing chain, is that, is that a thing, a timing chain? Yeah, he said, your timing chain is fine. That's probably what's rattling, but it's not getting any oil. Your engine's burning up oil. And he explained to me about how the oil flows over the piston and in the valve or something. I don't know. Right? And, uh, and so he topped up the oil. He put in some oil booster preservative thing. And then, he, and then he said, come pick up your car. And, get, and he didn't even charge me. I was, didn't charge me for the oil or the oil super booster stuff they put in all the time or the <laughs> whatever. I think he just felt compassion for this useless specimen of a man who can't even manage his own engine oil. Right? <laughs> so he let me off the So I, I can give you money for a taxi. I can uh, take you down to the station. I, I can drive you home, but I cannot help you with your car, right? Now, if you came to me and you said, well, Tim, this Friday night I've been invited to a game of Texas Hold'em Poker. Can you help me learn the game? Yes, you've come to the right place. All right. I will teach you not only how to play Texas Hold'em Poker, I'll teach you how to clean up on Friday night. All right. So come see me. You've come to the right place. So not everyone you turn to for help is going to be able to help. And sometimes the, the institutions and the organizations and the people in this world that we turn to for help just turn out not to be particularly helpful, right? I was talking to a family member of mine back in uh, SA. That's in South Africa, not South Australia. And um, he was telling me about a friend of his who was burgled. They had a house invasion. And so they phoned the police to report it, expecting the police to come out and do an investigation. And, uh, and the police just didn't show up. They literally just did not come. And then 18 months later, there was a knock on the door. Tuk, 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 tuk. The guy opens the door. There's two police officers standing there. Of course, he gets a fright. He's like, ah, who died? You know, why are you here? Because you don't expect the police to show up at your door. They said, we're here to investigate the break-in. <laughs> 18 months later, he said, what's the point, right? Everything's fixed. There's no more evidence. Everything's clean. Like, what a useless police force, right? So, so the help that you would expect to come doesn't always come. Um, in fact, I was reading a news story not too long ago about a guy in the U.S. in, Miss in Mississippi. And he was going to bed one night, and he was turning off all the lights, and, and his wife said to him, I think you left the lights on out in the shed. And he thought, well, I haven't been out in the shed today. That's not right. So he went out into the garden, and as he approached the shed, he noticed the lights were on, but he could hear noise inside. There were people inside the shed, obviously trying to steal his stuff. And so he went back into the house, and he phoned 911, and the operator said, well, well, are they armed? He said, I don't know. I don't think so, but they could be. She said, are they in the house or near the house? He said, no, they're out in the shed. She said, well, sorry, we can't help you because all the patrol cars are busy right now. Just go into the house, lock the door, and when we can send one, we will send one. So he wasn't particularly happy with our outcome. So he, he hung up, and he waited two minutes, and then he phoned back in two minutes, and he said, hi, this is uh, George Phillips, I think his name was. He said, I called earlier to say that there were people breaking into my shed, stealing my stuff. He said, don't bother sending anyone. I shot both of them. 
And then he hung up. <laughs> well, within five minutes, right, there were like three patrol cars, one security armed response, and an ambulance. And they all converged on his house, right? And they managed to apprehend the criminals. And then the police said to him, we thought you said you shot him. And he said, well, you said that there was no one available, right? So sometimes the help we're looking for is not forthcoming. But the wonderful thing about having a high priest like Jesus is that he is always available. And he is always accessible. And he is always able to help. And, and, and Jesus has ways and means. If he has to fly ravens over your house with domino pizza, he will do that, but he will get you what you need, right? He has agents everywhere. And if he has to go to Dave and whisper in Dave's ear and say, Psst, Dave, I need you to give $500 to Andrew Becker, right? That, that's not a prophetic word, by the way. Calm down, right? Dave will do it. Because Dave is an obedient, faithful servant of Jesus, right? And so whenever you come to the throne of grace and you come in your time of need, you come to a high priest who cares about you, who feels your pain, who knows your grief, who knows your sorrow, who knows your need, and who's able to do something about it. And you can guarantee he will do what you need. He will come through for you and he will not fail you. So with Jesus as our high priest, we have help for today. And thank God for that because as someone who is currently among the unemployed, I take great courage and confidence on that. All right. All right. So not only do we have Jesus as high priest and help for today, but the writer to the Hebrews says as well that with Jesus as our high priest, we have hope for tomorrow. With Jesus as our high priest, we have hope for tomorrow. And by that, I don't just simply mean you know, a confident expectation about the days and the weeks and the months that lie ahead, you know, of our lives here on earth. But we have a hope that transcends this life, a hope that carries all the way into eternity. And whenever you come across the concept of hope in Scripture, there's always this element of eternity attached to it. You cannot get away from the fact that Christian hope is an eternal hope. It's not just about optimism for, for the days that lie ahead. It's about a life beyond this life. And uh, so the writer to the Hebrews says, in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18 to 20, he says, Therefore, we who have fled to God for refuge. Anybody here today fled to God for refuge? Anyone a follower of Jesus and a believer in God? If you have fled to God for refuge, he says, you can have great confidence. We should have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for the soul. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. Jesus has already gone in there for us. He has become our eternal high priest. So with Jesus as our high priest, we have hope for tomorrow. And you notice that the writer to the Hebrews says that that hope is an anchor for the soul. So it's supposed to stabilize your, your emotions, your thoughts, your feelings, that internal world of who you essentially are. The hope that we have in Jesus is supposed to provide us with assurance and stability in the midst of all the uncertainty and all the unpredictability of life's storms. It anchors us. And, and the thing about an anchor is that an anchor is only ever as secure as that to which it is fastened. Right? An anchor is only ever as secure as that to which it is fastened. And so in a year like this, and in a season like this, it is critical for you and me to ask ourselves the question, so where are we anchoring our hope? Where is your hope anchored? Because if your hope is anchored to an economic recovery, or if your hope is anchored to the rollout of the COVID vaccine, 
or if your hope is anchored to ongoing government stimulus packages, or if your hope is anchored to that job promotion or to that significant relationship, your hope is anchored to something insecure and unstable and unpredictable. And you are never going to know peace of mind and you're never going to know stability in your soul because you've anchored your hope to something unpredictable. And that is precisely why the best thing you and I can do is anchor our hope to Jesus because He is the immovable, unshakable, unbreakable rock of ages with whom there is no shadow of turning and for whom nothing is impossible. And so when you anchor your hope to Jesus, you know peace of mind and you know rest for your soul. And so this hope, this eternal hope that we have in Him is quite specific. And, and, and I love how Paul the Apostle, um, elaborates on this specificity over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. And, and I want to take a moment just to, to throw a spotlight on this because this is such an important aspect of this eternal hope that we carry. He says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13, Now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to believers who have died so you will not grieve like people who have no hope. By all means, when people die whom we love, we grieve, we sorrow. We feel the pain, but we do so against the backdrop of the hope that we have in Jesus, right? And Paul goes on to elaborate in the verses that follow the specific nature of this hope, and it's fourfold. And I'm going to just share this with you quickly because we don't have the time to elaborate on it in any significant detail. And to be honest with you, each one of these aspects of eternal hope is a 40-minute sermon on its own. So here we go, just quickly. Firstly, we have the hope of His return. In verse 15 of 1 Thessalonians 4, he says, We tell you this directly from the Lord. We who are still living when the Lord returns will not meet Him ahead of those who have died. How many of you know there is a day coming when Jesus will return? There is a day coming when Jesus will break back into the human story in person. He will descend the way He ascended when He left this earth on the Mount of Olives, and He will return as the righteous judge of the nations, and He will rule and reign with integrity and with sincerity and with honesty and with righteousness. And friends, we are supposed to live in anticipation of that day. And I think a big part of the reason why many Christians have lost their appreciation for the return of the Lord is because they've lost their anticipation for it. And if you read the New Testament, you will find it is saturated with anticipation for the second coming of Jesus. And because they anticipated it, they appreciated it. And the truth of the matter is you and I are supposed to live like a four-year-old three days out from Christmas. We're supposed to live with an anticipation that Jesus could come at any moment. And we're supposed to look forward to it. So there is a day coming when Jesus will return as our righteous king and he will set the world right and he will eliminate sin and death once and for all and he will wipe away every tear and he will eliminate pain and suffering and sickness and disease and we ought to look forward to that day. All right, number two, we have the hope of our resurrection. Verse 16 says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. First, the Christians who have died will rise from their graves. Jesus here is talking about the hope of our resurrection. The fact that because He died and rose again, you through your faith in Him, though you die, will rise again. Death may have the power to take you, but it no longer has the power to keep you. Death has to give you up to the resurrection life that became yours through your faith in Jesus. And as a result of that resurrection hope, one day you are going to get a new body. And I'm going to get a new body. 
right? Everybody gets a new body. You get a body. You get a body. You get a body. You get a body, right? Everybody gets a new body. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 15. A physical, tangible, literal, visible, corporeal body. One perfected and glorified and conformed to the image of the body of Christ. One eliminated from, from sickness and suffering and disease and death. A perfect, glorified body. I don't know about you, but that's exciting, man. And I know you might be thinking, well, what kind of body am I going to get? Like, are all the guys going to look like Brad Pitt in Fight Club? I hope so, right? Are all the girls going to look like... I'm not even going to go there, right? We just... I don't know. The Bible doesn't say what we're going to look like, but we're going to get brand new bodies. Ah, oh, that's wonderful. That is part of the resurrection hope that we have. So we have the hope of our resurrection. Number three, we have the hope of a reuniting. Verse 17a of 1 Thessalonians 4, it says, Then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Here Paul is saying that those who remain when the Lord returns will be gathered together with those who've died in the faith and gone before us, and we will be reunited as we meet the Lord. I don't know about you, but this gives me great comfort and great courage. Because earlier this year, I lost my dad to bowel cancer. He was diagnosed in the last few weeks of February, and by early July, he was gone. And man, that hurts, you know. If you've had that experience, you know what it's like to lose someone you love. But you know, my dad was a faithful follower of Jesus. And he loved him and he served him and he honored him every day of his life. And I know that there's coming a day when I will see him again. There's going to be a great reuniting, man. We're all going to be together again in the new creation, in the kingdom of God. And if you've ever lost anyone you love who's gone before you in the faith, you have the hope of a reuniting. And what a wonderful hope that is, man. Aren't you thankful for that hope today? And then finally, number four. Last but not least, we have the hope of our reward. And in verse 17b, it says, Then, then we will be with the Lord forever. Somebody once asked me, um, so what do I get for following Jesus? The answer is you get Jesus. <laughs> he is our exceedingly great reward. Hey, forget about crowns of righteousness and mansions in the sky. You get Jesus. You get to know him. You get to live with him. You get to worship him. You get to serve him. You get to hear from Him for all eternity. The great reward is nothing less than Jesus Himself. And so with Jesus as our high priest, we have a priest who knows us, who understands us, who cares about us, who loves us, who feels compassion for us, and who is uniquely qualified and uniquely positioned to represent us before God the Father. And because we have a high priest like that, we have help for today. And we have hope for tomorrow. Thank God for the incarnation. And thank God for our high priest, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Fantastic. Coming up, band. I really just feel strongly that uh, this morning we just need to take a few moments uh, to do what the writer to the Hebrews encourages us to do. And that is to come boldly and confidently to the throne of grace. And to come and just open up our hearts to our high priest, Jesus, to call out to him and my sense is today, I think that there are people here who need help. Like help in the sense that you're facing a situation or a circumstance that is genuinely beyond your control. And there's really nothing anyone else can do for you. Maybe you've already exhausted all your options. Maybe you've, you've given up even trying. But I assure you today on the authority of God's word, Jesus is able to help. And if you need help today, then we want to come alongside you and 
agree with you and pray for you and cry out to God for His divine intervention in your circumstance. I think maybe for some of you here today, you've lost hope. I think maybe, maybe your heart's been overwhelmed with despair and discouragement. Maybe the demand of this year has just been too much. Maybe the demands of your life up until now have been too much. And you've just lost your sense of anticipation and optimism and hope for the future. And I just believe that today God by His Holy Spirit wants to infuse you with a new sense of living hope, of genuine optimism and confident expectation about the days that lie ahead. A firm conviction in your heart that God's plans for you are to bless you, to prosper you, to give you a future, to give you a hope, that He has good things in store, and that you'll be able to live out of the overflow of that confident expectation. And so I, I just want to invite you to stand in this moment, and uh, I want to invite you to just bow your heads and close your eyes with me. And uh, I just want you to open up your heart to God this morning. And if you're in, in any one of those two positions, if you're saying, Tim, today I, I need divine intervention, like I'm in a situation that I don't know what to do about it. I don't even know to whom I should turn. Um, I want you just to raise your hand where you are right now and just keep it up for a moment. And if you're here today and, and you, you're feeling overwhelmed by discouragement or despair and you're feeling like I need an infusion of hope from God, I want you to raise your hand as well and just keep it up for a moment. Thank you, Father. Father, I want to thank you so much for every hand raised right now in this sacred and holy moment before your throne of grace. But Father, we come boldly and confidently at the invitation of your word, and we just simply present ourselves to you. And we just say, Father, we thank you so much this morning that you know us completely inside and out. There's nothing about us that's hidden from you. You know every weakness, every fault, every failing, every shortcoming. You know every hope, every fear, every dream, every aspiration. You know us most intimately. And I thank you that because of that, you love us most deeply. And Father, I thank you. You know the details of every life and every circumstance represented by these hands raised right now. You know, God, what is needed. You know, Father, what needs to change. You know what intervention, what provision is required. And we trust you. We trust you wholeheartedly with our lives. We trust you with your decision. We trust you with your wisdom. We trust you with your intervention. I pray, God, that you would move as only you can move, that you would do what only you can do, Father, in every single one of these lives and situations, and that you would bring about release, that you would bring about provision, that you would bring about healing, that you would bring about opportunity, whatever it is that's required, Father, to bring about the necessary change for your sons and your daughters. We pray that that would be their portion and that would be their experience. Father, I pray in Jesus' name that there would be an outpouring this morning of hope and of faith. Faith, Lord, to dissolve the fear. Hope to dissolve the despair. I pray as we heard earlier, Lord, that you would infuse us this morning with joy and with peace. That, God, you would open the windows of heaven right now over our lives and over our hearts. And that you would just pour yourself out again in a fresh measure. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. We stand with our lives and our hearts open and ready. And we pray, God, come and pour yourself out in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Let's just stand.